You know, when we sing that song, whenever we sing that song, I often, uh, my thoughts are taken to the, the opening lines of Hebrews chapter 1. I want you to listen to these words carefully as we go to prayer, where the author of Hebrews declares that it was God who, after he spoke, he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many times and in various ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And fathers, we think about what's expressed in those verses. Father, there's so much there for us to take hold of. There's so much there for us to absorb and then, and then ultimately rejoice in. But Father, at, at the center of it all, at the song we just sang, at these words that we have just read, is the fact that you are the God who speaks. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, when you made the heavens and the earth, you spoke and all things came into being. Father, this passage tells us that throughout what we call Old Testament times, you spoke. You spoke to people. You spoke to prophets. You spoke to nations. And your word always came to pass. And then, Father, at the, at the perfect moment, Father, the season we are preparing to move into of, of Christmas and Advent, it says the, the ultimate speaking you ever did was to give us your son, the Lord Jesus who was born as a child, and Father, as we were remembered, reminded here only a couple of moments ago, came to, to give his life as a sacrifice for many, as a sacrifice for me, as a sacrifice for so many of us here in this room who have come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Father, now the Bible tells us that you speak to us in your word, you speak to us through your Holy Spirit, and that if we will listen, that if we will listen to and for the voice of the Lord, in the preaching of the word, Father, through the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you will show us the way in which we should walk. You will help us understand good from bad, right from wrong, truth from error, obedience from sin. And Father, your word even promises us, assures us again and again that, Father, having come to know you, to put our faith in you, having been sealed by your spirit, you are going to lead us all the way home. Father, we have of all people on the, on the face of this, this earth, Father, we are the ones who have hope. We are the ones who can have joy and peace and assurance, even in the most difficult of times. And so, Father, as we come to you today, having given you our, our voices, our hearts in worship, Father, having listened to the reading of Scripture, having, having journeyed together once again as we, we ought to to the cross, Father, we now open the, the Scriptures, the very living Word of God, Father, as always, not to hear what one man is going to say, but Father, through the simplicity of, of one man preaching and all of us listening, Father, to, to hear, to listen to, and to obey the word of God. Your word is truth, Father, and we need the truth. So Father, my prayer for us now as we go to your word is that you give us open hearts. My prayer as we go to your, your word is that you give us attentive ears. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace, the ability to, to shun distraction, Father, to confess, to, to lay burdens on you, and then to receive. Again, Father, not what I have to say, but what you want to say to us through this message. Father, we know that to do that, we need your Holy Spirit. So the one who is already here, we invite him now to work, to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from distraction, 
and to help us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, when we, when we walk out of these doors in a little while, back into the world, back into the week, Father, may it be with a renewed sense of hope and, and of joy because we were reminded that there is one who came and laid his life down for us. And he took it up again and then gave us the gift of eternal life. His name is Jesus. It is him we worship. It's him we celebrate. It's him we praise. And it's in his name that we pray as all God's people said together. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as always, as you're sitting down, boys and girls, you can head out for Children's Church this morning. Five-year-olds, up to those second graders, go get some time in God's Word. As I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. This morning, I want you to meet me in Colossians chapter 3, where we are continuing, we are really into the heart of, with a few weeks left to go, this this look at, at what it means, as it says on the screen behind me, to belong. Now, many of you have been here for, for several, most, maybe even a few of you, all of these messages, but as I look out here today, I see some faces I don't know, which means that maybe you haven't. So just so you know, because you're, you're, you're stepping in midstream, mid-series, what we have been doing uh, all fall and, and right up through Christmas is really taking a close look at what the Bible says about the difference or what the Bible expresses through what it says about the difference between merely attending a church and genuinely belonging to a church. Because there is a difference between showing up, taking a seat, participating in the service, and belonging, being, knowing that you are moving toward being integrated into the life and the activity and the ministry of the church. And we've all called to not just, have been called not just to attend, but to belong. And so if this isn't your home church, if you are our guest today, first of all, we're, we're so glad you're here. We're thankful that you've chosen to join us, but we would encourage you to take whatever you hear today that's of value, take it back to whatever your church home is. And decide that you want to, not merely if you are currently an attender, to pursue being a belonger. To do that, what we have been doing, we've been bouncing all over the New Testament. By the time we're done with this series, I think we'll have hit almost every New Testament letter. Uh, maybe not every single one, but close. Today, as I said, we're in Colossians chapter 3. So as always, I want you to have your Bible open on one hand, and then if you still have a copy of it that we were distributing earlier of our Covenant of Fellowship, have that available as well, because that is the, the framework we're using. We're going through our Covenant of Fellowship and seeing where these commitments to the local church, where they spring from, where they are rooted in the scriptures. If you don't have a copy, there's some in the back, and, and if you're nearby and, and don't feel self-conscious about it, go grab a copy. Otherwise, I'll throw today's commitment up here on the screen in a few minutes. With all of that said by way of introduction, we are in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to a church in a city called Colossae. And I'm going to begin reading this morning in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 21 where I invite you to follow along because this is what the Word of God says. It begins, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved ones, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ 
richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. You know, one of the songs we often sang in Sunday school when I was a kid, simple little song, we sang it, it seems like looking back every single Sunday, went something like this, maybe you've heard it before. Read your Bible, pray every day, And you will, who knows, grow, grow, grow. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And then if we were really feeling sort of into it, then the second verse was introduced to us as well, which was the very converse. Don't read your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. Which as a very self-conscious firstborn eight-year-old Enneagram one, that was enough to give me... A spiritual inferiority complex that lasted well into my adult life. Read your Bible. Pray every day. And you will grow. But you know, as I think about it now, as simple, as childlike, some might even say as childish, as a, as a song like that, as a, as a poem like that happens to be, I actually would like to suggest this morning that it serves as a a rather memorable way of expressing the eighth commitment in our church's covenant of fellowship. The eighth commitment, which is the one we're looking at today, which if you look at it up on the screen behind me, reads as follows. Commitment number eight says this, to engage regularly, that is those of us who are committed to belonging to this local church, we will commit with the Holy Spirit's help to engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer, and to establish family devotions where possible. Let's just read that together so it's all established in our minds and hearts this morning. Read it with me. To engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer, and to establish family devotions where possible. And what we're saying in that statement, just as with all the others, is this is something we will resolve to do, again, with the, the help of the Holy Spirit, under the grace that Jesus gives, that this is another integral part of what it means to move toward maturity in Jesus Christ. But the question we should then ask in looking at that statement, the same question that I have been seeking to ask and and present throughout this series is this. Well, that's fine and good. That's a statement. Let's just leave it up there for a couple more moments that I'm sure any of us who knows Jesus would probably, hopefully, heartily agree with. But what does that have to do with with the whole body of Jesus Christ, the whole local church. What does a statement like that contribute to our consideration, to our discussion, to to hopefully coming to a deeper understanding of the difference between merely attending and genuinely belonging to this or any other local church? That is to say, what does my being called to grow have to do with you? What is your, as a follower of Jesus Christ, man, woman, teenager, child, what is your call to grow, to read your Bible and pray every day, have to do with me or anybody else in this room this morning? 
Well, what I want to suggest, what I want to set before you this morning is that based on what Paul wrote in these 10 verses we just read, it has a whole lot to do. The call to engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer, to establish family devotions where possible, has a great deal to do with the life and the health and the maturity of the the church family, this church family as a whole. And so what I want to show you in the time we have together from this text are at least three essential factors of the call to grow. Three essential factors in this call to grow to maturity in our faith. I want to show you what these things are and along the way see if I can also express what any of that has to do with our church together. So there's three things I want you to see this morning. The first one is in verses 12 through 14. And it is simply what I call the prep. The first thing Paul talks us to, talks to us about when it comes to the call to grow as followers of Jesus is he gives us three verses. He gives us a word of prep, of preparatory instruction that he wants us to take to heart. So the first thing we want to see is the prep. Now, everything Paul says in verses 12 and 13 and 14 at least much of it, maybe not all of it, we actually dealt with, if you can think back several weeks ago now, uh, to when we looked at commitment number four, the fourth commitment in our covenant of fellowship, which says this, that we are called, we are asked as fellow believers in this local church to be thoughtful and courteous toward one another, to be slow to take offense, quick to forgive, and seek forgiveness. And so several weeks ago, when we looked at commitment number four, we went to Ephesians chapter four, And among a few other things, what we saw there is that as those who belong to the same local church, with me as your brother, you as my brother or sister, you as a family member of everyone sitting around you, we have an obligation. We have a spiritual mandate to do such things as as bear with one another, as speaking the truth in love to one another, to resolving our conflicts with each other. To be slow to take offense, to quick, be quick to, to grant forgiveness, and above all, to guard our hearts toward each other so that roots of bitterness and pettiness don't set in and, and drive us apart from one another. We saw that several weeks ago. And, and so, so what I'm not going to do this morning in verses 12 through 14 is rehash all of that again. Go back through those verses line by line. It would be a helpful study, but we've been down that path already. Instead, what I simply want to do with these first three verses is highlight that the central theme, both here in Colossians chapter 3, as it was back a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4, is this. And and if you don't remember anything I've said so far, I want you to establish this as sort of your baseline seed thought this morning. It is this. The call to grow, everybody say the call to grow is a group project. Let's say that again, all of it together. The call to grow is a group project. That is that it requires decisive action, intentional choices on the part of each and every member of the church. In fact, one of the things you need to know about not just verses 12 through 14, but I want you to know about the entire passage that we read here a few minutes ago is this, that every single line is written in the plural. Every single pronoun is a, not a singular, but a plural pronoun. That is, it's written not to you or to you, but to all of us it's written for each of us to take to heart. So for instance, the proper way to understand verses 12 through 14 is this, look again at your Bible. So... 
As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved ones, all of you put on a heart of compassion. All of you put on a heart of kindness. All of you put on humility, gentleness, and patience with each other. All of you choose to bear with one another. This is what Paul is saying to them and to us. All of you are called to be forgiving of each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave all of you, so also should all of you forgive one another. Beyond all of these things, all y'all put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. As men and women whom God has chosen, as men and women whom God has forgiven, as men and women whom God unconditionally loves as his children, do whatever it takes to walk together in truth and love. Whatever it takes to walk together in truth and love. That's verse 13. Bearing with each other, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, as God forgave you, you should forgive one another. What I believe Paul's saying there in practical language, therefore, is this. Be honest enough. Be honest enough to acknowledge, address, and deal with the things that come between us, because things come between us. Sometimes they're intentional and hurtful. Sometimes they're entirely accidental. But be honest enough to say, when something comes between us, hey, something has come between us. There's a problem. There's an issue. There's a misunderstanding in the relationship. Be honest enough to deal with the issues. Don't be a peacekeeper. Be a peacemaker. Be honest enough to deal with the things that come between us. And then Paul is adding, what he's saying here, is also be humble enough to put it to rest once it's been dealt with. Because to forgive, for me to forgive you as Christ forgave me, for you to forgive me as Christ forgave you, means that I, once I have said, I forgive you, or I'm sorry, means I surrender, I sacrifice every right to ever bring that to your attention again. Ever. Because that's what Jesus has done for us, right? Do you want Jesus ever throwing your sin back in your face? No, you don't. And he doesn't. That's how he forgave us. That's what he calls us to do toward one another. And so what I'm saying to you here from verses 12 through 14 is that in our pursuit of this call to grow, and that's what Paul's calling us here, he's calling us to spiritual growth. What he's saying, what he's telling us we must do is regularly, consistently do the preparatory work of keeping clean slates with each other, of keeping short accounts with one another. Don't let the file grow. Don't let the grudge list settle in and the grudges on it multiply. Bearing in mind that Jesus meant it when he said the following, if you're coming to worship to present your offering, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. If you come to worship to present your offering, which presumably we all did this morning, that's not just money in the box, it's our offering of praise, it's the reading of scripture, it's, it's all that we do here together. He says, if you come to worship and to present your offering to the Lord, and there you remember, once you took your spot in the pew, there's somebody in this room who has something against me. There's somebody in this room that I have something to get. He says, he says, drop that offering right where it is. Don't go singing and waving your hands. Don't go put your, your offering in the box. Don't amen the preacher's message if there was actually something worth amening. Go fix it. 
Go reconcile it. Go resolve it. Then go find that offering and bring it to the Lord. He says, deal with the stuff. It's preparatory work. It's essential. If we're all going to grow together, Paul says, we must do these things. Jesus said we must do these things because here's the bottom line. If we aren't right with each other, we cannot grow the way God intends. We can grow, but not the way God intends. So the first thing we need to see, the first essential factor of the call to grow is this. There is preparatory work. It's spoken to all of us, but it is up to each of us. That then takes us into the second thing. And this is really the main thing where we're going to spend the vast majority of our remaining time together today. And that is this, that in verses 15 through 17, having called us to do the prep, now Paul explains to us, secondly, the process. second thing I want you to see in the text this morning is the process. And, and there is so much to say here, and I want, to, I want to address as much of it as I can. But for starters, what I simply want to do, invite you to do with me, is to simply look at the, the personal obligations that the call to grow includes, from which our then our covenant of fellowship commitment to regularly, consistently engage in personal Bible reading and prayer comes from. Again, it's spoken to all of us, but it is applicable to each of us. And so Paul says, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have trusted him for the forgiveness of sins, you have linked yourself to a local church, which we are expected and called to do. He said, there's three things here that you need to do in terms of moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ. It requires three things. Here they are. Number one, according to verse 15, growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ requires time, first of all, in his presence. It simply requires a commitment to spend time in his presence. Look in your Bible again with me at verse 15. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you, all y'all, were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, originally that word for rule that Paul used there, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That was an athletic term in, in Paul's day and age. If you read Paul's letters, he uses athletic metaphors all the time. I think Paul, if he were around it, he'd be a sports guy, right? He probably wouldn't be as obsessed as, as most of us are, but he was into it, and he used the analogies all the time. And, and the word for rule here was, was the word that in Paul's day was used of an umpire or a, or a referee, the individual in charge of maintaining order, establishing flow, and making sure that everyone on the field plays by the rules, that everybody does their job, and that they're all doing it correctly. And so here what Paul is saying to you, to me, to us as Maranatha. He says, let the peace of Christ be the controlling, the controlling influence in our lives and our life together as a church family. The peace of Christ is to rule. It is to umpire. It's, it's calling the balls and strikes, the hits and, and the outs, that the peace of Christ is to be controlling everything about our life on our own and our life together. And, and by peace, what Paul means, peace is a fascinating word. He, he means not simply the, the absence of conflict. For some of us, most of us, absence of conflict is enough peace for us, right? To, to be a peacekeeper as opposed to being a peacemaker. Let's just make sure no conflict erupts among us and call it unity. Let's make sure that, that, that there's no open friction and screaming and yelling and we'll call that peace and we'll call it unity. That's not what the word means at all. I mean, that's part of it but it's hardly all of it. See, the word for peace that, 
that Paul uses here in, in the Greek, it's a derivative of, of the word for peace in the Old Testament, which is shalom. And, and you've heard that word before. Maybe you know a lot about it. Maybe you know a little bit about it. But, but shalom is, is it all, probably the best way I can describe it, is an all-consuming, inside and out, sense of harmonious, joyful well-being. He says, I want you to be at peace in every way. Not just in an absence of conflict, but that your heart would be full. That your relationships would be right. That your worship would be rich. That even when life is hard, you still have peace that, that Jesus is there. I would like to submit to you this morning, because I believe it with, with all my heart, is would you agree with me when I say that's something only Jesus can give us? You cannot manufacture it and neither can I. We can sing till our voices go away. We can preach till everybody in the room is asleep. We cannot manufacture peace on our own. It's something only Jesus can give us. And it's something you can only get from Jesus by spending prayerful time in his presence. That's why we invite those of you who call this church home who want to grow to engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer. Spend time in his presence because it is in, in the presence of Jesus that we find peace. I have a friend, Brian Hill. He's a worship pastor here in town. He wrote a song not long ago. I, I, I reached out to him this week for the lyrics because they expressed this so well. He wrote a song called Peace is a Person about Jesus. He said, peace is a person, love is his name. All who are weary, bring all your pain. For peace is a person, and his love doesn't change, and all who are broken can be whole again. You can only get the peace of Christ by spending time in the presence of Christ. And I'm here to tell you it's possible. It may sound like a, like a shameless plug. If so, let it be what it is. But, but just, I think there were about a dozen of us at this past Wednesday's noon prayer gathering and, and I think if I were to ask a dozen of you to stand up and testify, I will not do that right now. But I think, again, you'd agree with me when I say that, that I, at least, perhaps you experienced the peace of Christ, like, like, honestly, like few times I've ever spent, felt it, sensed it in a time of corporate prayer. We looked at the statement Jesus makes. We're going, we've begun going through the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. And, and we spent 45 minutes in prayer. The vast majority was simply praising Jesus, worshiping Jesus for being the one who satisfies all our needs. And there was laughter and there was tears and there was transparency and there was confession. And it was, it was over like that. But there was this sense, would you agree with me, those of you who had this sense of peace. And it ruled in our hearts. And it can rule in yours if you commit, if we commit to spend time in his presence. That's the first thing Paul says. The call to grow, the process, insists that we spend time in his presence. Secondly, it insists, this should be no great surprise, that you and I as believers spend time in his word. The second thing Paul says is it takes time in God's word. Verse 16, look with me again at what it says. He says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then he goes on to say, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, right before my wife and I were married, before we got married, a couple of weeks before, the church we attended at the time 
had a couple shower, right? And, and they, they bring both of us in, and they give us all kinds of gifts, and it was wonderful, and it was fun. And, and um, a few of you were, were there back in the day, a long, long time ago. Um, and, 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 and being a church couple shower, there was a devotion. And, and I, I double-checked with my wife last night just to make sure this was true. The, the, sing, the one single thing we both remember from that, I don't know that we remember anything else. I don't remember the presence. I don't remember how long it was. I don't remember what the rest of the, the devotion was. But I, I do remember this, that, that the couple, the older couple in the church who spoke to us, the wife first spoke to Beth and, and gave her words of encouragement and instruction about how to have a, a, a great marriage and some of the things she learned. And then the guy turned his attention to me. And I don't remember anything else he said except for this one very deeply, spiritually profound line. He looked me straight in the eye and with a smile on his face, but a serious tone in his voice said this. He said, Aaron, Burger King is not a date. <laughs> Burger King is not a date. And, and I had to chew on that for a moment, and there was that awkward silence you just experienced as well when he said it. But, but his point was this. He said, listen, he said, if, if this relationship is going to grow, if you're going have to a, have a good marriage, if, if you and Beth going forward are going to richly dwell together as husband and wife, it can't be a fast food relationship. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes loads and loads and loads of conversation which isn't necessarily the easiest thing for, for most guys, including me. But, but he said, this is what it's going to take. If you're going to richly dwell together, you must spend time speaking and listening to one another. It had to be a priority. And his point coming out of that, and I found this to be true over 26 years, is that when you invest in a, in a healthy way in your marriage relationship or in any relationship, it begins to overflow in all sorts of other blessings. It's just a good thing all around. You begin to richly, I'm not saying we've arrived by any means, but I'm saying that his advice was true. Now, truth be told, for a while, Burger King was a date for us, okay? Like for about three years, in fact, we lived on Burger King for a while. I don't know why I'm telling you this story, but I'm, and I started, so I got to keep going. There was our first year of marriage, every morning our alarm clock, what radio went off, and and on the station we listened to, there was a, a, a trivia quiz, and, and we were a great team because Beth can dial a phone like nobody's business. And, and I knew the answers to most of the trivia questions. And the prize every day was two breakfast biscuits from Burger King. As I'm telling you, we won that thing all the time. And for the first year of our marriage, Burger King was a date because that's about all we could handle was free handouts from the local radio station. But even so, as I said to you, I got his point. And it's the same one that Paul is making here about the call to grow. If you're going to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, if we are going to grow as a family in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we must each make time for, verse 16, the word of Christ to richly dwell within us. Does that sound like a fast food drive through to you? Not to me. Time, focus, intentionality. And by the word of Christ, what Paul means is that, of course, the story of Jesus' life is recorded in the Gospels. The words of Jesus' teaching and his example is shown to us in the Scriptures. And, and the glorious, matchless truth of his gospel that is then unpacked throughout the rest of the New Testament and, of course, entirely foreshadowed throughout the Old. If you want to grow, and I, I hope that you do, 
you got to read God's word. you got to think about God's word. And then really, the, maybe the most important part of all is to then, having read it and thought about it, to align your life to it. And whether you do that by inspiration, you study the word of God, you're like, oh man, that is such a great opportunity. I'm going to go over that. Or if it's by conviction, oh my goodness, my life is, is not aligned with Jesus Christ and his word. And I need alignment. And I think what Paul is saying at the end of verse 16 is you'll know it's happening. It's not easy. But we'll know it's happening as time spent in his word moves from an obligation to a joy. Why? Because what did he say? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Time in his word can be a joy. It really can. And by God's grace, it will be when we devote ourselves to it. So the process involves, number one, time in his presence. The process involves, number two, time in his word. Process also involves, thirdly, verse 17, time in his service. Time spent in serving our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, verse 17, whatever you do, everybody say, whatever you do. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Why? Because as far as I can tell from reading my Bible, there is no such thing as a sacred secular split in the life of any Christian. There's no such thing as a sacred secular split for the believer. That is to say, there should be no difference in the way you conduct yourself at worship on Sunday versus work on Monday. It means that for the believer in Jesus Christ, there should be no difference between the attitude and the character traits you display on the playing field, no difference from those as to what you show in the prayer meeting. There should be no difference in your morality, in your standards, in your thought life between Saturday night and Sunday morning. No difference. Different activities, but same character. Because you see, what Paul is urging us to do in verse 17 is to consciously integrate, take this devotion to Jesus, time in his presence and time in his word, and integrate that devotion into every single dimension of our lives. Nothing's off limits. No sacred, secular split. And I would say to you, and as, as many of you, I know you, this is your intention. That's where spiritual growth really begins to accelerate. When it's not just I'm accumulating knowledge up here, and not just that I'm able to spit it out from here, but I begin to, to live my life accordingly. That will accelerate spiritual growth. Stepping into the service of Jesus Christ with the gifts and talents and opportunities he has given you. So he says, here's the process. Time in his presence, time in his word, time in his service. Now with those three things said, and, and as substantial and as important as they are by themselves, there's a, real quickly before we move on to the, the third and final point, there are a couple of threads I want you to see in these three verses, 15 through 17, that bind these instructions together. They are not haphazard, they are structured and intentional. The first thread I want you to see in verses 15 through 17 is this, it's we're only going to spend a moment on it, but I think it's really important, is this, that Paul says these three things, time in his presence, his word, and his service, are all to be done with a grateful heart. All of it. Maybe you caught it the first time. If you didn't, look again. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be what? 
thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That is to say, investing in your relationship with Jesus. Make the choice now. It's a joy, not a chore. It's a joy, not a chore. And it will prove to be a blessing. But then more significantly for our purposes today, once again, I'm going to belabor the point. Paul says that what he's just told us in these three verses are things we should do together. These are things to be done together. Partly because, as I've already noted, everything Paul said here was in the plural. He said it to everybody for personal application, but it's spoken to us all. But in a practical sense, think about the fact that in the days and the times in which Paul lived, and he wrote these words, followers of Jesus Christ didn't have what you have, which is a copy of the Bible. We didn't, people didn't have them in their houses and on their shelves. They didn't carry massive scrolls around with them of the scriptures. By and large, if you wanted to know what the Bible said, that would be in Paul's days the Old Testament scriptures, but this would have been right on through until the invention of the printing press in whatever that was, 1500 AD. If you wanted to know what the Bible said, you had to go where the Bible was. You had to get together with other believers. The thought of me hiding in a closet somewhere studying the scripture by myself was a foreign thought to most believers because it just wasn't even an option. They had to get together to study the Bible. And and if they didn't have a copy, the only other way to to know the stories and the teachings of, of the faith was simply through oral communication. Fathers told their sons and daughters. Mothers told their grandchildren just as they had been told before. Again, you can't do that by yourself. you got to get together. So the entire mentality of, of the entire scriptural record is that this is something we look at together. Furthermore, I believe that the vast majority of Bible evidence, Old and New Testament, suggests that when it came to things like prayer and to singing, those, the first thought of most believers was those are corporate activities too. I don't hide in a closet and sing by myself. I, I, I don't... I don't go and and pray by myself. No, I get together with others. And we do it together. Why? Because spiritual growth is a group project. That's how God designed it. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't or we shouldn't do these things alone. We should read our Bibles and pray every day if we want to grow, grow, grow. There is a spiritual, and, and our covenant of Fellowship Commitment says it, to engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer. But here's what I want to invite you to do. Think for a moment about how you've done most of the learning that you have done in your life. Most of us have spent our entire lives in a cultural setting where we gather for instruction, right? We go to school. We gather together for someone to instruct us in the material. We converse over the material. We respond to the material. We think about the material. We gather for instruction, and then we scatter for homework, right? And, and, and in homework, on my own, I, in a more concentrated way, I think about what I've heard. I respond to what I've heard sometimes just through sheer repetition. I, I seek to, to absorb what I heard. We gather for instruction, and we scatter for application, And it is in those scattered moments 
that the principles we were shown together, the principles of math and science and language, are driven home. So here's my question. Why would spiritual growth be any different? Don't believe those people who tell you they don't need church. Oh, me and Jesus, we're good. Not really. Because that's not what the Bible says. It shows us and tells us we need each other. The call to grow is a is a group project. And, and if this growth is going to happen in your lives, we must begin with a commitment. Not a casual commitment. Not a fluid commitment. A rock-solid commitment to meet together. To come together as a church family first. And from that, then go deeper. And that is what the process is all about. We've been called to grow together. Together is where it happens first. So Paul gives us the prep. He says, number one, check your heart. Deal with the issues so that we can grow together. Number two, engage in the process. Verses 15 through 17, through time, corporate, and then personal. Time in his presence, in his word, and in his service. And then the third and final thing Paul speaks to us about in verses 18 through 21 is the proving ground. Paul speaks to us finally, third and finally, about the proving ground. Now, when we first wrote this covenant commitment some, I don't know, 17, 18, 20 years ago, to engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer and to establish family devotions where possible, the idea behind that was simply this, not to to tell you how to run your life, but to simply say that, that the first place, everybody say the first place, the first place to practice what we preach is in our homes. The first place we have to practice what we preach is in our homes. And that's why I chose, when mapping out this series, this particular passage for us to look at. Because Paul gives us all this instruction in verses 12 through 17, and then it looks like he makes this like hard left turn into something entirely different in verses 18 through 21. But I don't think it was an accident at all. I think for a variety of reasons, Paul knew exactly what he was doing. Because here's what he went on to say. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Seems like he's gone off on an entirely different tangent, but he hasn't. It all fits together. Now, I don't know whether it's a disappointment or a relief for me to tell you that I'm not going to examine all these verses today at all. We're not going to look at each verse and each line today whatsoever, partly because if you've read ahead to next week's commitment, next week's commitment is entirely about family life, about children and, and, and parents and, and our home life. But mostly the reason, other than time, we're not going to dig into those last five verses in any sort of concentrated way today, is because the main thing that needs to be said about it is this, that not only, listen to me, Not only is home the first place we should practice what we preach, home is the hardest place to practice what we preach. Amen? Yes, it is. Home is the hardest place, the hardest place to practice what we preach because it's so daily. It's all the time. Family relationships, marriage, parenting, being a kid, Home life are the proving ground, which I'll argue it all day long. I believe they are the proving ground, which more than any other place expose how much we're really moving toward maturity in Christ. 
And I say that as someone who knows that I fail regularly at it. Nowhere will it show you how you're doing in your walk with Jesus, like home and family and relationships. How we, those among us as wives, yield to your husbands. Husbands, how we love our wives and are not embittered against them. Young people, how you express obedience to your parents. Dads, whether or not you exasperate your children. That is the litmus test of spiritual growth, bar none. That's the litmus test. That's the proving ground. But I would also say to you that it also ought to be the, the prime motivator for us to pursue spiritual maturity. To say, boy, I need to grow. I want to grow. Because this stuff going on at home, that I don't, like, I don't want it to be this way forever. And so, yeah, it can drag you down and pound you into the dust and go, wow, I'm such a failure. Or it can say, it's time to get serious. To commit to the body of Christ, the local church. To commit to time with him on my own. Personally and together to pursue spiritual discipline. It can crush you, but it ought to, motiv- it ought to be a, a crushing that heals and restores and motivates. And we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But that's the proving ground, no question about it. The prep, the process, the proving ground. You probably have heard, I would imagine, that the California redwoods are the, both the tallest and the oldest trees in the world. California redwoods are the tallest and the oldest trees in the world. California redwoods, we didn't get to see them on our vacation. I want to go back and see them someday. I know some of you have. They routinely grow more than 300 feet, 300 feet tall, 350. I think the tallest one ever was 379 feet. They live hundreds. Some of them live up to 2,000 years. Maybe you've heard those facts and figures before. Tallest, oldest trees in the world. But did you also know, and I just discovered this not that long ago, that a California redwood's roots go no more than 12 feet into the ground. Some are between between 6 and 12 feet into the ground. Now, I'm no engineer, but that seems like an engineering impossibility, right? You'd never build a 350-foot monument or skyscraper or whatever you're going to build with a a foundation that goes 8.5 feet in. It's just not, not the way it works. So how do you account for the redwoods' incredible height? and matchless strength. Well, the secret of the redwood's strength is this. While their roots only go 8, 10, 12 feet at most down into the ground, their roots spread out up to 100 feet in every direction. And in doing so, they intertwine with one another deeply, inseparably, ununtangleably. They grow together. And so while they look on the outside to us like they're individual, in the subterranean places underground, they're anything but. They are so tightly woven together, they're almost impossible to topple. I think you see my point. The body of Christ works the same way. We're called to live our individual lives, or we're responsible for the choices we make and the things we do. But as the big idea of today's message says, we grow stronger. I would actually modify that to say we grow strongest in the faith when we pursue Jesus together. We will grow strongest in our faith when we pursue Jesus together. And so, Father, I pray that you would 
Father, I think you've already shown us this morning, at least to some degree, what that requires, what the commitment is. And Father, though you do love us, forgive us, unconditionally care for us, you also entrust us with this incredibly high calling of pursuing you, not with some of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but with all of it. And Father, I pray that to whatever degree we are, or perhaps are not doing that today, that for many of us, this would be, Father, not because of anything I've said, but because your Spirit applies your word to our hearts. This would be a watershed moment, opportunity for many of us to say it's time to take Jesus seriously again. If that's what you need this morning, I want you to stand right now, not to embarrass you, but to simply establish with your body as well as your heart that, that I want to grow in devotion to Jesus Christ. If you're not going to stand up, don't look around at anybody else. Just work with what's in your own heart. But if you're ready to grow in devotion, in time with Jesus, time in his presence, time in his word, time in his service, if you're saying, yeah, I, I think this is what God wants to deal with in me, let's just, those of us who are in that place this morning, stand. That I might pray for you. Not because my prayers are magical, but but simply because we're supposed to do this stuff together. And if you're not there, don't stand. It's okay. But clearly some of us are. Father, I thank you that you know the hearts of those standing before you this morning. Father, uh, many of us have known you a long time, decades. Others of us are fresh in the faith. Some of us are in a season of deep renewal and longing to grow. Father, you don't ask us to be perfect. You don't ask us to, to check a box and fill out a time card as somehow representative of spiritual commitment. You invite us into a relationship, a relationship where we grow. Father, I don't need to know what's going on in the heart of each one standing before you today, but, but you know. And I pray you take whatever commitment is being made right now, being expressed by someone moving from their seat to their feet, Father, that you would take that and you would honor it and that you would fuel it. And Father, that, that even as we walk out of these doors today, we would not be able to shake or forget the passion, the longing we feel to know the Lord Jesus more. And to walk with him, Father, not as solitary figures, but as a family whose roots are intertwined, that we might all stand strong. Father, I believe you're pleased with what you see here today. I pray that you would use it for your glory in each and every one of these lives. I'm going to invite the rest of us just to stand now together, wherever your heart is, but in solidarity with one another. So we say, Father, help us take the things of truth that have been spoken here today and seal them to our hearts. Father, take all that is irrelevant and distracting and cause it to be forgotten that we might even now, Father, as we close in song together, as we sing about building our life upon your love, we might do it with great freedom and joy, knowing that we sing it to a Father who loves us and calls us to grow. Lord, we do love you. 
It's in your name we pray, and now it is to you that we sing. Amen.